Martha, let me begin with you. A lot of signs now that Vladimir Putin is isolated. We see those pictures of him at the end of very long tables alone. Some, also some signs of dissension inside his inner circle. What are you picking up about that? I, I think that's exactly right, George. And, and I've been hearing that for over a week, that he is behaving erratically, that he does not trust his inner circle anymore. I mean, think how much intelligence the U.S. put out leading up to this invasion. That was very worrisome for Vladimir Putin, who's talking. How are they getting this? Is any of my inner circle talking? But his erratic behavior is continuing, they say, and his ferocity and intent as well. And Steve, we're seeing some of these oligarchs, as James just reported, starting to speak out a little bit, calling uh, for peace. I, would, I have a couple of questions on that, a version of the question I asked Vice President Kamala Harris. What difference does it make? Would the U.S. actually like to see the oligarchs and the Russian people come together and depose Vladimir Putin? Uh, I don't think it's the oligarchs going to do that. Uh, Putin owns the oligarchs. They are his bank. Uh, all his assets are held by the oligarchs. So he owns them. If they are speaking out, George, it's only because Putin said they could speak out. So I think we ought to look at it from a different angle. If we hear the oligarchs speaking out more, it may be that Putin wants them to say, hey, we need to pressure him and we need to do it. But I think we need to think about off-ramps here, George. The off-ramps are critical. And the thing that's interesting to me is that the Ukrainians asked the Chinese Chinese to come in and broker a peace deal. And they have agreed to that in principle. So Xi Jinping could uh, have a double win here with his Olympics and step in to be the savior of this conflict. We'll see, we'll see what, what comes of that. In the meantime, Martha, you mentioned the intelligence. What is it saying now about the potential for Kiev to fall? I think it all looks bad, and we've seen it. We've seen we've seen Ian's reports. We've seen that convoy now about 17 miles away from Kiev. Uh, the officials I speak to say that all Vladimir Putin wants to do at this point is crush Ukraine, and they're worried that he can do that. Uh, his tactics, obviously, uh, pointing at civilians now. Uh, his his initial push into Ukraine didn't go the way he wanted it to go, and that has really increased his intent to keep going to crush Ukraine, George. Steve, can the Ukrainians hold out long enough to at least give the, some chance for this diplomacy, perhaps by Xi Jinping and others, to work? It's hard to say, George. One of the things we talk, we've been talking about all week is this convoy coming down, and this convoy is particularly disturbing. Uh, most of the strikes we've seen are either aerial strikes or long-range missile strikes. The Russians have very few of those, so what they need is that conventional artillery. That, conv that convoy has lots of conventional artillery. It's getting closer to the city. When it gets to about 10 to 15 miles, then they can begin the shelling of the city that we really, that's our dread there is that it turns into a Grozny or in Aleppo. So that's why it's important to keep that convoy outside of 10 to 15 miles from the city. Ominous. Steve Gannon, Martha Raddus, thanks very much. Well, Diane, this is certainly a balancing act for the White House. We heard last night Biden trying to speak to the Americans who are frustrated and tired by this pandemic, but he also had to speak to the immunocompromised, people who are still at risk, and these parents of kids under the age of five who are still unvaccinated and remaining at risk. So we are told that the plan today is going to address uh, that later group that's at 
risk of the virus. They're going to promise three things. We're talking about more free rapid tests. You can go online starting next week and order those again. Uh, they're also going to set up a pharmacy clinic program where people who test positive at these pharmacy clinics would then immediately be given these new antiviral pills from Pfizer. These are the pills that can reduce, if they're given early, they can reduce a person's chances of hospitalization by almost 90%. So these are very promising, but we need to get them in wider supply, more wider availability um, to really help people. And then the third thing that he talked about that we expect to hear more about today is this idea of a new vaccine. If there is an aggressive new variant uh, that can evade our immunity, um, he's got to be able to respond. He's promised to deliver a new vaccine within 100 days. That's a big promise to deliver something that would go into a person's arm within 100 days from manufacturing and development uh, to the pharmacy. So those are big promises by the White House today. And the president in his State of the Union last night, first of all, addressed a maskless crowd. Uh, first time in a while we've seen that. And talked about how this, all of these are steps to the fact that it's time to kind of move on and get on with, with normal life. So are we going to see this reflected in, in an end to mask mandates across the board? Well, we're certainly seeing in the states that have control of the mask mandates that they are pulling this back. Uh, they know that voters are tired of this pandemic. Um, one of the questions that I would like to put to the White House today is whether or not they really believe that one-way masking works. How protected is a person if you're the only one on an elevator, for example, wearing that mask? Um, but, you know, again, this is a balancing act for the White House because they want to say that there is light at the, at the end of the tunnel. They want to give voters hope. At the same time, we all know that this situation can turn very, very quickly, depending on a variant, because we know that most of the world right now isn't vaccinated. We know that Africa, for example, is still struggling to vaccinate its healthcare workers. So until we get those vaccines widespread globally, this will still be an issue. But the message from the White House right now is we've got this. We can manage this. You're not going to have to worry about it. You can get back into the office. You can send your kids to school. And that is certainly what voters wanted to hear. So, Anne, why do this now? Is this politics? Is it science? Or is it a mix of both? Well, I think it's a mix of both. You know, we've heard the CDC director talk before that public health guidance is only as effective as people are willing to hear it. And you have to be able to meet people where they are. You know, if they came up with guidance that no one is willing to follow, it's not useful. So in her mind, I think that she is trying to give people something to hang on to. I think it's going to be a very visible message today when the White House officials gather at 1030. They're not going to be in a mask. They'll all be together physically. That is a big shift. Um, but I think that they're also going to give the message that, you know, look, the vaccines worked, but this isn't over yet. This could change at any minute. Right. And Flaherty, we appreciate it. And thank you. These figures now. This is the first time in seven days of fighting the Russians have actually put a number on the number of uh, on, on the troops that they have lost, about 500. It's far fewer than the Ukrainians say. The, the Ukrainians believe they've killed maybe 5,000 or more Russian troops since this began. It's an impossible number to independently confirm. Uh, 5,000, 6,000 would, would eclipse 20 years of American losses in Afghanistan. But even if the number is somewhere in there, it does show you the, the ferocity of the fighting and how formidable the Ukrainian defenses have, have been. The Russians are probably keen to bury any any bad news for domestic consumption undoubtedly the number is probably higher than they're acknowledging 
but it comes as the Russians and the Ukrainians are about to sit down on the Polish-Belarus border for a second round of talks aimed at a ceasefire. And it's a significant location, Kira, where these talks are going to be taking place. The same hunting lodge in 1991 was used by, uh, by the, the Soviet Union to dissolve itself when, when Ukraine and, and Russia and Belarus all got together and dissolved the USSR. And, Phil, the humanitarian crisis, we continue to follow it. It's growing now with more than half of the refugees escaping Ukraine uh, being taken in by Poland where you are. Are you getting a sense of the emotional toll that this is just taking on the refugees now? And what's next for them? You've been spending a lot of time in getting to know many of them very well. Kira, I think the frightening thing is the answer to both of those questions just not known right now and, and might not be for quite some time. Uh, Aaron is talking about those talks on the Polish-Belarus uh, border. We were just there two days ago at a shelter that has been set up uh, for, for some of these refugees. Uh, to take the first question, what kind of toll is this taking on the refugees? Uh, my goodness, it's trauma. I mean, you see them coming. It takes days to get across the border. And once they get here, they're either staying with family and friends or they just have nobody and nowhere to go, and the Polish people are putting them up in shelters. So it is a trauma, and I don't know, you know, some of the refugees we're talking to are just flat out crying. Others have this blank stare on their face. So, you know, everybody's different. Some people have processed this by the time they get here, or they're in the, the, the process of processing it. Others are just in a state of shock because they've had to leave everything they know in their home, come over here, women and children, and not know if their dad or, or their husband is even going to survive the battle. What happens next? Kira, that's unknown as well. They don't know how long they're going to have to be here. They do know they're going to have to settle in for quite some time, though. And efforts also, Phil, uh, underway helping soldiers as well? Yeah, we saw that today, Kira. We actually drove past uh, what in American terms would be like a, an Army-Navy store. Uh, but this one was much more than that. We went in and spoke to the owner, uh, who is Ukrainian, like so many who live here in Lublin and in Poland. And he was exhausted, said he's sleeping a couple of hours a day. What he is doing is spending thousands of dollars of his own money. And along with his friends here, they are putting together packages of everything soldiers would need, not just the soldiers, but their friends who are in Ukraine as well. And they are taking all this across the border. He is going across the border and coming back. And we've told you how long it takes to get back. He is just exhausted. But he said, I'm fighting from here. Those are fighting in Ukraine. I'm Ukrainian. I can do what I can uh, from Lublin, Poland. I am fighting from here. And he's getting everything from, you know, supplies, blankets. Uh, the, we, we saw knives. I don't know what else is going, but he did say he's spending thousands of dollars because he's seeing the pictures we're all seeing on the TV screen right now, and he just can't handle it. Wow. Phil Lipoff, Aaron Katursky, gentlemen, thank you so much. Hi, everyone. George broke out, they were an ocean away from each other. Petro was in Kiev. Ola was working in New York City. Will they join us now? Still an ocean away from each other, but safe. Ola's in the U.S. in New York. Petro is in Eastern Europe. So, Petro, let's start with you. And just, I, I can't believe when I heard about your journey, how many hours it took you uh, to get out of Ukraine. I know this must have been a very difficult decision uh, because men are being forced to fight there, but you had an opportunity here as an American citizen to flee. How did you come to this difficult decision? 
thank you very much. That's a, that's a very good, very good question. I mean, uh, age had a factor. My family all being in the United States had a factor, meaning my children and my wife. And I decided it's probably best if I try to help Ukraine from outside its borders. So I decided to go. Um, you mentioned it took several hours. Ukraine is a big, big country. Size of Texas, uh, population of California, I mean, it's a big country. And to drive from Kiev when the missiles first started falling to the southern border in Romania, where I crossed the border, uh, was, uh, was a good, you know, nine-hour trek plus the, uh, the ordeal at the border. And you actually started seeing explosions on your drive out. What was, just describe that to us and what was going on in your mind at that moment? Yeah, I was, I was fortunate that um, uh, my wife called me uh, at about uh, 5.15 in the morning Kiev time. And she said it's time because she has seen some coverage on the news media of explosions in Kiev. So I scrambled, I had my bug out bag prepared and I hit the road and it was just before sunrise. So the sky was still dark and you could see like, uh, like uh, to my left as I was driving, like a mini sunrise happened, but it was actually an exploding missile that lit up the sky and then disappeared. So that's, yeah. And so there you are in real time, Ola, you're watching this all unfold uh, via television. At what point did you just get so scared for your husband and for your country that you had to, you just had to tell him what to do. I mean, I, I can't even imagine being in your position. Yeah, well, it was a difficult decision and I knew that it would be extremely difficult decision for Petro. Our family was there together with our three children that we raised in Ukraine during 2014, during the revolution of dignity. And at the time that Russia invaded Eastern Ukraine and illegally annexed Crimea. So I knew that he was having a difficult decision with leaving, but um, as he explained, it was in the best interest and we felt we could help the most this way. So, yeah, it was, a, it, it was, it's, it's all just horrific and we're safe now and very grateful and we're trying to do the best we can to help U Ukraine and Ukrainians at this moment. Ola, they need Yes, they need all support. They need communication. You need to help them fight the propaganda war. I mean, Ola, did you ever think that Putin would do this? Well, like I said, we were there in 2014, and, and you know, we, we saw what he was doing firsthand at that time. And also, just historically, our parents survived World War II, um, were forced to flee. There are horrible, traumatic stories for all Ukrainian a diaspora and Ukrainians from that time as well. Um, my, my mother was separated from her mother at age 11 when she was forced to flee with my grandfather. And shortly after, my grandmother was sent to a gulag in Mordovia, Russia. And they were out of contact for about 10 years or so. And unfortunately, we're never able to see each other again, but we're able to write letters. So we, we knew our whole life what what Russia is capable of doing and how they're not interested in seeing Ukraine as a sovereign country that it is. Oh, my gosh, Ola, just reminiscing, looking back at what your parents went through, no doubt that has helped you, yes, inspired you, given you strength. How have you been channeling what your, your family has gone through years and years ago? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's for me, my, my saving grace is my art. My art is symbolic of, you know, my family history intertwined with Ukraine's history and having been living there for the last 25 years. Um, you know, I felt connected to my grandmother that I never met. And so that's what comes out in my art, which is a symbol of freedom and identity. Okay, then I have got to ask you, I'm assuming that's your art next to you. I can see the face of Mother Mary. Tell me, is that right? Is that, please, and have you been working yeah. on this? Yes, tell us about this piece and, and how you've just been uh, using artist therapy right now. Well, this piece was created in 2014 um, when the war began eight years ago in Ukraine. And it's inspired by my grandmother's story that I never met because when she was sent to the Gulag after losing everything, her family, uh, her home, everything that she knew, uh, she was secretly and, and doing physical labor during the day. It was a female labor camp. She secretly was creating embroideries in the night um, after it's kind of a long story. So just to make it short, we received some of these embroideries um, in America and one of which was an unfinished icon. So when the war broke out in 2014, when we were living in Kiev, Ukraine, I started collecting just all the articles and magazines and newspapers to uh, express what was going on for myself and just intuitively created uh, a, a version of my grandmother's unfinished icon in a contemporary way, symbolically hoping that this was because Ukraine was finally going to realize itself, which it, which it has as a sovereign and democratic nation and has no right to have a gun to his head. It stands wow. as, a, as an, anchor, an anchor of democracy for us in Europe. And I think it's all of our responsibilities to do anything and everything we can to stop this because Ukrainians imminent need, need help and need this to be stopped immediately. Spoken as a true artist. Petro, I can see why you married this woman. Um, Petro, you actually shared a message uh, with the Russian people on Instagram. Will you share that with us, please? Oh, wow. Okay, you saw that. No, I mean, I think now is a tremendous time for the Russian people to rise up. I mean, rising up in Russia is not easy because they have a very strict police and protesters are immediately arrested and in some cases tortured so i have sympathy for that and a huge amount of respect for the protesters in saint pete and moscow but it's now time for the entire population to rise up and stop this madman otherwise i do believe russians will be looking at generations of shame because the barbaric nature of the cluster bombs thermobaric bombs are now coming into ukraine cruise missiles i mean these are innocent civilians being being slaughtered uh, I'd, I hate to see what, what the numbers are. There's an urgency in this, and the moment is now to rise up. The whole world is with you, citizens of Russia. Rise up and end this madness. Ola and Petro Rondiak, I want to thank you both so much for being with us. I hope you are reunited soon. And Ola, please keep us in touch. Uh, keep in touch with us about your art. We want to see that exhibit. We want to lift you up and draw attention to it for sure. Art has incredible messages that can move people beyond a battle that's for sure thank you both hi everyone <laughs>